This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. It's safe to say that Charles Darwin is a household name. He's arguably one of the first scientists that you learn about. And of course, his theory of evolution is the basis for our understanding all about uh, all the organisms on this planet, how, how everything is connected, all, all big ideas here. But what's less known are his do-it-yourself home experiments. Did you know about those? Well, my next guest calls him the MacGyver of experimentation. From the Beagle to his home called Downhouse, he performed studies on everything, from earthworms to snails. He even used a severed duck foot in an experiment. I think we'll, we'll get into that in a little bit. He dabbled outside of biology into the realm of psychology. But even though his experiments touched on different subjects, he used them to gather evidence to support his theory of evolution. So what do these experiments reveal about Darwin as a scientist? We're going to take a Darwinian deep dive with my next guest, James Costa, professor of biology in Western Carolina University in Colohe, North Carolina. He's also author of the new book, Darwin's Backyard, How Small Experiments Led to a Big Bang Theory. A big theory, not a big bang. <laughs> and his book includes step-by-step instructions for you to recreate. You want to recreate these experiments? You can read an excerpt of that book on our website at sciencefriday.com slash Darwin. Darwin's Backyard, How Small Experiments Led to a Big Theory. James Costa, welcome to Science Friday. Great to be here, Arvid. Thank you. And if you have a question for his experiments and about Charles Darwin, our number is 844-724-8255-844-SCI-TALK. Sorry to butcher the... Title of your book, James. But. Ah, well, no welcome worries. to the club. Um, <laughs> in, in your book, you write that Darwin's experiments instruct as well as entertain. Novel, amusing, at times hilarious, yes, but they also shine a spotlight on science as a process. Darwin was a prototypical MacGyver figure. Mm. Uh, tell, tell us about that. Why do you, you say that? Yeah, yeah. You know, his, his experiments are, to me, they represent, you know, just, you know, pure, unadored, unadorned um, scientific inquiry. You know, just someone who uh, is, is curious about what's around him, is observing things closely, coming up with, you know, on-the-fly, you know, experiments. Some of them, you know, maybe slightly on the wacky side, but trying to figure out, you know, um, what, what's happening in the natural world. And, uh, the, you know, the, the very simplicity of those experiments makes them, I think, just eminently accessible for us today. You know, they can be used to actually illustrate um, science at its most essential, uh, really in anyone's home, backyard, schoolyard, et cetera. Mm. He, he does have critics. Some of his critics called him uh, a superficial dabbler. Give mm. us an idea of what Darwin's experiment, experimentation style was like. Well, you know, this was a time when, of course, experimentation uh, in the natural, in the in the life sciences especially, wasn't formalized. And so, you know, his his curiosity was expansive. As you mentioned, he's interested in, in orchids and snails and, um, you know, little, little um, plots of plants and earthworms and, and so on. And so at any one time, he might have a dozen different little projects going on, you know, all um, literally in his backyard and the nearby meadows, woodlands. Um, and they, they seemed very small in, in scale, and they would be um, addressing odd questions. And so it was maybe easy for some to sort of laugh at them. And he, in fact, had a, you know, he had a self-deprecating sense of humor. He sort of poked fun at himself. He called them his fool's experiments. 
And uh, but but he always, you know, he he, he was convinced that there was an, an interesting and serious point to be learned by them. You know, that's interesting that you bring that up because one of the things I learned about Darwin is that he was sort of would be like a fun guy to hang out with. I Absolutely, mean, he, yeah. yeah. He's well known, you know, the literature, you know, um, reminiscences and such about Darwin are clear. You know, he had a real sense of humor um, from from early on. He was a jokester. Um, he would play little practical jokes on, on his friends and family, um, involve them in his various experiments. Um, I think by all accounts, he, he was a fun guy. He used his own toenails in, a, in an experiment? Uh, in, in at least one, yeah, he was sort of, he was, he came upon some sundews, um, these little diminutive carnivorous plants while he was searching for orchids one day, and he was a bit, a bit bored and thought, well, let me take a look at these, and was interested in, you know, their, their, their ability to sort of, you know, eat, um, they are, they are carnivorous plants, and, and, uh, but he had never really looked closely at them, and so he came up with, um, just an on-the-fly little experiment to see initially yeah. what might they be interested in sort of quote-unquote feeding upon and he fed them some of his hair and some of his toenails and um, that was the sort of maybe unauspicious beginning to what became a really interesting series of studies that culminated in a book but in that initial experiment you know they sort of um, metaphorically you know spit out the toenails the, the sundews were not interested mm-hmm. when, when Darwin was on his famous trip on the Beagle in his journal, he uses the word observe over and over, but mm. he only mentions the word experiment four times. What, was he conducting experiments while on the Beagle? He, I, he was um, without maybe consciously kind of thinking of them as experiments. I mean, in, in my book, I talk about how you see um, elements of Darwin's penchant for these you know, kind of on the fly, you know, quick and dirty, curious experiments, even while he was on the Beagle Voyage, Um, like the one where he was, you know, throwing iguanas, you know, away from the shore to, you know, try to demonstrate if they really do swim back to the same spot, you know, it was sort of conjectural whether they were truly marine um, lizard relatives. And, you know, there's no other species like it, Um, um, you know, this, this marine iguana. And so, you know, he tried to, you know, test whether they were they would actually return repeatedly to the shore and, and were able to swim. <laughs> now, I know I, there are a lot of, I'm not going to call them wacky things, but there are sort of wacky things, interesting, you know, uh, stories and experiments in the book. And I know that you write about he collaborated uh, with his fellow family members. And one of the intensive studies he talks about, you talk about, uh, he he conducted with his family was on earthworms. They played music for earthworms. What were they? they what were they trying to figure <laughs> out? What are they like Mozart or the Beatles? I mean, what? <laughs> well, well, probably some Chopin. You know, um, his wife Emma was act- was a, a, an accomplished pianist, and actually she studied under um, Frederick Chopin at, at one time. So he, she might have been playing some Chopin. You know, um, but his and his son Francis played bassoon. His little grandson Bernard played penny whistle. Um, the, the interest there, and this came you know pretty late, this was in the late um, mm-hmm. 1870s, he's interested in, in their sensibilities, you know, their sense perceptions, right. and um, can, they, can they detect these sounds? And you know, he sort of maybe had a hunch that it was the vibrations that they were paying attention to, but, but he realized the absurdity of it, you know, that, that, that here they are all playing musical instruments to these earthworms. He would put a, he had them in his, in flower pots that he called wormeries, and he would put pots of, of, of you know, his wormeries up on the piano, and Emma would play, 
his wife Emma, then he would um, remove it several feet away from the piano and she would play and he would observe their uh, reactions to, um, to, the, to the music. Wow. I know one of your favorite experiments of his involved a dead duck foot. He's trying to figure yes. out the dispersal of snails. Describe, describe that for us. Yeah, the, 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 the duck foot experiment. Um, he probably used more than one, you know, severed duck foot. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm sort of expecting they probably ate, ate the ducks and he just saved the legs, you know. He was interested in dispersal in a very global sense, you know, how do species become distributed as we see them. And he thought that, you know, the powers of movement of species on their own or by being carried, you know, by other organisms, um, that that must be, yeah. you know, that underlies a, a whole lot of, of dispersal. Mm -hmm. And so when it comes to freshwater um, ponds, lakes, and such, uh, when you have aquatic organisms like, like snails that can't live very long outside the water, he's, you know, wondering, well, how do they get from pond to pond and lake to lake? And so he devises an experiment figuring that um, waterfowl must be um, responsible. So he uses these, these severed legs um, and he dangles them in what he calls a snailery, and, uh, which is a, an aquarium full of snails. And he wants to see if the snails will climb on board and he's watching them closely, and when they do climb on board um, on the on the on the duck's foot, um, he pulls it out and he puts it on his mantle. He wants to see, well, how long can these snails survive outside of water? And so he documents this repeatedly, and he's trying to determine, well, you know, if, if these snails can live hanging on for dear life on these snails, on these on these ducks' uh, feet for um, you know hours, let's say 20 hours, 24 hours, well, how far could a duck fly in that time? Well, conceivably, they could be carrying these these little snails hundreds wow. and hundreds wow. of miles. That's interesting. I, we don't have a whole lot to get into this next question, but I, 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 you talk about Darwin having a big blunder in the Glen Roy study about how shorelines were formed. And my question about that is, do you think this hmm. ex experiment influenced him later on to hold back on publishing his evolution theory? You mentioned hmm. that in your book. Yeah, I, I, I've wondered about that. Um, he was, you know, Darwin was was really gung ho and, and thought of himself uh, as a as an up and coming young geologist when he returned from um, his voyage around the world on HMS Beagle. Um, geology certainly was a really hot, uh, fascinating, exciting science at the time, and he he saw himself as a as a geologist, and and uh, he was very gung ho and and immediately threw himself into you know, some of the interesting, outstanding geological questions of the day. And one of them had to do with these, um, these curious uh, parallel uh, lines that one could see uh, on the, the landscape of Glenroy in Scotland, kind of etched in the, in the hillsides. And, and he threw himself in with, with abandon. And, um, you know, he, he very quickly uh, published and um, all too soon came to grief, you know, came to realize that he had really missed the boat. Um, the, the, the science of glaciology was only just being born at that time. Um, the, uh, in France or Switzerland, um, Charpentier, Louis Agassiz and here in the U.S. Uh, were, were developing the glacial theory. And Darwin's idea was that these, these lines were essentially fossil marine beaches. And he wasn't too far off. They are beaches, but actually yeah. freshwater. From um, glaciers. And no. so, yeah. exactly, from glaciers damming the, the, uh, this valley. And so he, um, he, he really regarded that as maybe his greatest blunder, and he probably realized he was way too rash 
in, in, in jumping in. And I suspect that did play a role in his later caution. You know, he was determined to painstakingly collect um, evidence, especially in areas that he knew would prove to be hmm. uh, rather controversial with his, uh, with his colleagues. Talking with uh, James Costa, author of Darwin's Backyard, How Small Experiments Led to a Big Theory. We're going to take a break. Talk more about uh, Darwin's uh, do-it-yourself experiments. If you want to do it yourself, you can go to our website at sciencefriday.com slash Darwin, where you can read an excerpt of the book. And uh, we have instructions there how to uh, recreate these experiments. Darwin, uh, sciencefriday.com slash Darwin. We'll be right back after the break. Stay with us. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. We're talking this hour, in case you're just joining us, about Charles Darwin's lesser-known experiments. My guest is James Costa, professor of biology in Western Carolina University. He's also author of a new book, Darwin's Backyard, How Small Experiments Led to a Big Theory. I want to bring on another guest to talk about another creature that Darwin meticulously studied for years. I'm not talking about the famous finches. I'm talking about the barnacle. Dean Penchep is a research scientist at the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles. Welcome to Science Friday. Well, thank you very much, Ira. You know, we, we know that, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, that Darwin was interested in barnacles, but why are you interested in barnacles? Give us, give us your elevator <laughs> speech about why we should care about barnacles. Oh, where do I begin? Uh, <laughs> barnacles are, are spectacularly weird animals, um, actually. So uh, most people think of barnacles as the little white dots that, that plague their boats. Um, but um, barnacles are organisms uh, mo most closely related to crabs and shrimps and lobsters. And uh, they look like a mollusk. They look like um, a little seashell with that white outer shell. But actually inside there is effectively a little shrimp glued to the rock with by its head and, and using its feet to, to gather food from the seawater. Um, so these are, these are organisms that at, certainly at the time of, of Darwin were reasonably well understood to be crustacea. They were known to be related to the crabs and shrimps and lobsters, but boy, are they strange, are they bizarre in the way they, they metamorphose and turn from a, a, a swimming larva into this shelled creature on the shore. So did he discover mm -hmm. that what they truly were? Not really. That's, that's, he was lucky enough to, to come into the, the field when um, there had already been a bit of work, uh, really good work done on barnacles. And for decades, centuries, there had been debate about, you know, are they mollusks? Are they yeah. something else? Because, you know, they're, they're quite peculiar. Um, it, shortly before he really dug into um, the barnacles, um, John Thompson, uh, another researcher, had made the key connection w by looking at the larvae of the barnacles and realizing, oh, these things that are floating around that look like crustacean mm. larvae, these are barnacle larvae. Oh, okay, they're crustacea. So he had that in place already. Um, but he just really dove in and um, really systematically studied all the barnacles he could get a hold of from collaborators, huh. researchers, um, to really try to understand how they, they were all put together and what made them what they are. Did, did, they, did they help him shape his theory of evolution at all? I think there's good evidence that they did. Um, the barnacle work that he did was the big project that he was working on hmm. just at the time that essentially his, his bluff got called and the, uh, the, the letter from Wallace arrived and it became clear and he was leaned on by his friends to publish 
um, his theory of natural selection. That The focus of his work at that time really was barnacles. Um, in the work, you can sort of see him struggling with the same kinds of fundamental ideas that he was trying to work out in Origin of Species. Um, what are the origins of these different structures? Why is it that yeah. particles are similar to each other, different from each other? Those are the kinds of questions that are answered in Origin of Species, but the substrate that was causing him to, to really chew on those questions at that time was barnacles. Jim Costa, mm -hmm. you agree? Uh, yes, I, uh, I would. You know, he's, uh, I, I think it's, it's fair to say, um, you know, he, he sees in barnacles um, bizarre adaptations. They have very strange sex lives um, and a superabundance of, of variation in, uh, in all of their parts. Um, I think he sees them as sort of evolution in action. He's especially interested at that phase, I think, in the evolution of separate sexes. He's, his idea is that evolutionarily all groups of organisms start uh, having both sexes kind of contained within the same individuals, but that over time they become separated into um, individual males and females. And, and he, he thinks he sees this, um, this dynamic process unfolding in the world of barnacles because of their very bizarre sex lives, with, um, often with these very um, you know, minute males that sort of adhere to the, uh, to the outside of the females. Very strange. Interesting. Let me ask this of both of you. Do, do you think that Darwin could have existed today in the way we do science now? Oh, he was an hmm. extraordinarily thorough scientist. Um, and, and, and by the time of Origin of Species, he was already, um, as, as James has, has said, he was already a very well-respected um, scientist for all the work that he had done to then. Um, science at that time, it worked at a different pace. Um, there weren't um, the kinds of journal uh, publications that we are used to today. There wasn't email. Um, people <laughs> wrote voluminous letters to each other. That's how things um, got exchanged. That's how ideas got exchanged. So he worked at a, at a slower but much more thorough pace than I think we are used to today. Um, the kind of work he did, these four volumes on barnacles, would be pretty unusual for a single researcher to do today. Does it happen? Yes, absolutely. Um, but, but we've shifted to a much uh, higher feedback rate uh, mode mm. of doing science. Jim, you agree? Yeah, I, I, I would agree. You know, Dean makes a, a, a really good point. Um, and you know, historians, uh, some historians would regard Darwin as the last of the great uh, so-called country house scientists. So these were scientists that um, really had, they were fairly well off. They had the, uh, the luxury of time and resources to really, those that were interested in the, in the sciences, to truly delve very deeply into the subject. Um, and uh, that's an interesting way to think about Darwin. You know, he's also literally conducting his, his uh, experiments and such at home. Um, this is, in the late 19th century, the cusp of a transition to the professionalization of science, where it really is beginning to be done more in uh, under controlled conditions in well-designed laboratories, and we're formalizing, you know, statistical analyses and experimental design. Um, so I, I, I think I would agree with, with Dean. You know, he really had the luxury of delving very, very, very deeply without the kinds of pressures that scientists uh, experience today. Well, Dean, I want to thank you for taking time to be with us today. Well, thank you for uh, letting the Natural History Museum uh, have a part in this. We really appreciate it. We, we were happy to have you. Dean Penchef is a research scientist at the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles. Uh, you're probably getting a sense that Charles Darwin's interests reach 
beyond biology. He was interested in sea creatures and birds and finches. But he was also trying to understand people. My next guest was able to go into Darwin's original archives, and he found a little-known psychology experiment conducted by Darwin. Peter Snyder is a professor of neurology and surgery at Brown University. Welcome to Science Friday. Thank you, Ira. Thanks for having me, and hi, Jim. Hey, Peter. Hey, uh, Peter, you, you actually found Darwin's notes where he was disagreeing with a theory put out by uh, the famous neurologist Guillaume Benjamin Armand Duchenne. What was, the, what was Darwin's take on the theory? I did. I was spending um, about a month and a half at uh, Cambridge University's library. I had the luxury and pleasure and honor to be able to really dive into the collection. And I was very interested in his work in the late 1960s, I'm sorry, 1860s and early 1870s, um, when he turned his attention after publishing Descent of Man uh, to, to look at the human condition and to better mm-hmm. understand how um, we fit in to the grander evolutionary theory that he uh, became so famous for. And he was interested at the time in uh, the expression of emotion. He believed that uh, the emotion expression of uh, in humans is not uh, substantially different across races and cultures across the planet, and that it fits into the evolutionary line with other primates. Uh, hmm. that, that, that this function is conserved. And at that time, Duchenne, the French neurologist, believed that humans were unique in the animal world and that we had myriads of different facial muscle groups, each muscle group specific to conveying a different emotion. And Darwin just didn't believe it. He had a copy of Duchenne's folio because uh, of, of photographs um, where Duchenne stimulated muscle groups in an actor that he paid uh, to um, make the muscles contract piece by piece in the face and to create emotion, some of which in some of these images look normal and appropriate as human emotions, and some, frankly, just don't look real uh, to the naked eye. And, and Darwin had this portfolio, and he simply didn't believe that there were 60 different emotions um, that were unique to humans. He, he really believed that there were a smaller set of just a few cardinal emotions, and he, he set about to try to figure out what those were. Hmm. Did, he, did he find out what they were? Well, he did a really unique thing for his time. He actually did run a single-blind psychological experiment in his home with 24 family members and guests that came to Down House, uh, one after the other. And what he did was he took a subset of Duchenne's images, and he showed them to each person uh, one by one, and he... um, made sure that he was not asking leading questions. He simply asked, please look at this image and tell me what emotion you see. And mm-hmm. either he or his wife, Emma, uh, wrote down on a, on a table uh, that covers three pages um, what the responses were for each uh, respondent. And you had the respondent's name um, on the y-axis and the date that they visited. And then you had uh, each uh, a column for each of the images that were shown and then what the responses were. And then in pencil mark off to the side, you see him, uh, Darwin, uh, 
tabulated the results uh, and the mm-hmm. ones that were there were the greatest uh, agreement across the respondents these 24 visitors or family members the images where there was the most agreement those were the ones that were turned into woodcut prints that went into one of his great books the expression of emotion in animals and man wow uh, and jim mm-hmm. darwin was also testing his ideas in, in babies was he not he was, and uh, and this and this fabulous um, experiment that Peter um, so nicely described kind of was it was an extension, I think, of this broader interest, not only in understanding um, sort of the universal uh, aspects of, of the human experience, but also ultimately relating humans to other animals. So, you know, that book that that Peter mentioned, um, the expression of the emotions, the full title refers to uh, in man and animals, and he's ultimately looking at really, you know, the similar sorts of um, what you might call facial expressions, emotional expressions in in other animals, and it, it, that that involved looking at infants as well, looking at, at babies, trying to get a sense of of um, infant expressions um, as mm-hmm. the most uh, essential, basic expression of certain of certain emotions. It looks like he had a he, notebook. He, it looks like he he was very intuitive thinking, and that he would act on an intuitive idea. He, he certainly was. He, I mean, in addition to babies, he was also studying emotion at the same time in psychiatric patients. He uh, had a long correspondence with a very famous psychiatrist and the rector of one of the largest lunatic asylums in Britain mm. at the time, uh, James Crichton Brown. And uh, he believed, Darwin believed, that by studying emotional uh, expression in psychiatric patients, you had this opportunity to have an unbridled, unfiltered look into raw human emotion in mm-hmm. individuals who were, for for psychiatric reasons, not yeah. um, not not covering or acting or or paying attention to social graces. They were, it was just the raw right. human emotion. This unfiltered. is yeah. this is Science Friday from PRI Public Radio International. Talking about Darwin, could he be accused of today, if he were a, a researcher today, of overstepping his boundary of expertise by going into human research as opposed to, you know, the animals and things he studied on islands? Well, sure, yeah. I, I, you yeah. know, I think actually he should be celebrated for this. You know, I, I, we've hmm. spent so many decades and 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 of time as individual researchers in our own domains in our own silos working on our mm-hmm. own projects and and the new trend in science across the biological sciences can be characterized by multidisciplinary team research and and some of the most important insights in biology are coming from crossing disciplines and darwin uh, so long ago had the tenacity to do this, and he wasn't afraid to push new ground. He wasn't afraid to really push himself. And, you know, he's a re- he was a remarkable individual for that reason. Well, why do you think we don't remember him for most of these things? I mean, has, has evolution so crowded out all these other achievements? Well, we, we remember him for the, the, the outcome. I mean, for the, you know, for the incendiary, incendiary book, you know, On the Origin of Species. Um, but if you, you know, those that take the time to read that book, they see, you know, the painstaking efforts that have gone into building um, an evidentiary 
case, you know, um, subject after subject, you know, a book that he called one long argument and yet has, you know, many, you know, many different subjects, hybridism, domestication, um, geographical distribution, fossils. Um, so we, we remember the sum total, which is really, you know, the, the total, the book in its entirety, in, in, in some very important, I think, philosophical and scientific ways is greater than the sum of its parts. Um, so I think that it's, you know, s seldom read, maybe too seldom read uh, in detail, or people would be, I think, more aware of the way he went about making a case uh, for his arguments. Peter, you agree? Oh, I do agree. I also think that there's an issue with the sheer volume of the work that he produced. I mean, he mm. wrote over 20, he wrote 22 books. He published many, many monographs. His letters to his peers and to colleagues and to people he admired uh, covers 80,000 pages of documents. Um, the, the collections that he amassed uh, of specimens, both when he was on the Beagle and, and afterwards, are just immense. So it's very hard to really wrap one's head around the totality of what he accomplished in his career. And it's probably just, you know, uh, really honing in on origin of species and perhaps maybe descent of man as a second important work of his is an easier way to, yeah. to really wrap your heads around what Darwin uh, accomplished. Well, I, I want to... True, and, yeah. uh, and it might point out, too, that then specialists would be perhaps more interested in some of the more narrowly focused books that came after these, you know, books on, you know, carnivorous plants, for example, climbing plants, earthworms, right. and such. Now you can see how that naturally comes out of your uh, reading your book, Jim, and then it's a great book. The book... Uh, uh, James Costa's book is called Darwin's Backyard, How Small Experiments Led to a Big Theory. Quite a delightful read. I learned so much about Darwin from that. I want to thank you for writing and being a guest with us today. Oh, great pleasure. Thank uh, you. And Peter Snyder, professor of neurology and surgery at uh, Brown University. Thank you, too, for sharing what you know about Charles Darwin. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. After the break, we're going to get bored. I don't mean Science Friday is boring, but we... Now, now we want you to get bored... And uh, harness that boredom for better brains. We're going to talk about it after the break. Why boredom ah, can be good for you. Stay with us. We'll be right back. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Plato. When was the last time you were bored? I don't mean trapped in a meeting. You hated bored. I mean really bored. Staring at the wall bored. Watching paint dry bored. Driving through cornfields bored. I'm getting bored just reading this. How, how long did that last? I, I, if you're like me, you reached for your smartphone as soon as possible, right? Maybe you have a game you play, you turn to social media, you see what's trending on Twitter. But would you ever be willing to stay bored, turn that phone off, or just leave it at home? Well, my next guests are here to say you should try that. Just try that. That filling time with our smartphones is actually taking something valuable away from us our boredom. And the brain, when you're bored, it's actually doing important work that can help you be more productive in the long run. Manoj Zamarodi is host of WNYC's podcast, Note to Self, and she has been thinking about this for a few years now. <laughs> She's <laughs> yes. the author of a new book, Exploring the Benefits of Boredom, Bored and Brilliant, How Spacing Out Can Unlock your most creative and productive self. And you can read an excerpt on our website at sciencefriday.com slash board. She's here with us in New York. Hey, Manoj, good Hello, to see you. Hello, Ira. Good to see you. And Mary Helen Imordino-Yang, a neuroscientist and psychologist, associate professor 
University of South, uh, Southern California in L.A. Welcome, uh, Mary Helen. Hi, nice to be here. And we want to ask you, our listeners, do you ever get, do you ever let yourself get bored, or is your smartphone filling the, well, you're filling your void? Give us a call on number 844-724-8255, 844-SCI-TALK, or tweet us at SciFry. Manush, why are you urging us to get <laughs> bored rather than, than being mindful? Okay, yes. So I'm wondering actually if some Science Friday listeners took part because a couple years ago I was here to, you guys helped me launch this project. It was a week long experiment where 20,000 of us sort of tweaked our smartphone behavior to see what would happen, to see if it would jumpstart our creativity. And actually, it worked. We got stories and data, and I did a ton more research, and that is what is in now the book version of Bored and Brilliant. And I think for me, what it was about and what I found out it was about for so many people was this sense that we were always turning to our gadgets the minute we felt the slightest bit uncomfortable. We could always check Instagram or refresh the headlines or show our spouse or coworker that we were responsive all the time. And really... I was wondering, you know, what is the cumulative effect of never having boredom in your life? And I talked to people like Mary Helen who explained to me that when you get bored, you ignite a network in your brain called the default mode. And in the default mode, you do some incredibly important work, original thinking, and you cannot tap that brain power necessarily if you are always tapping your phone. So if so, you, if you deprive yourself of that boredom, you're actually, Mary Helen, you're actually affecting your brain functions? Yeah, potentially. I mean, what we now know from literally hundreds of fMRI studies, so neuroimaging studies where scientists have put people into the brain scanner and taken pictures of how blood is moving around in their brains when they're just resting and daydreaming and thinking about things uh, as compared to really trying to do an effortful task, paying attention to something, trying to respond quickly to something. And what we've learned is that the brain is operating in these complex dynamic networks that are balanced with one another and that shift and switch off with one another uh, in accordance with the way that you're thinking. And when you're attending to things in the world, when you're listening to your cell phone ding or you're getting that little rush from checking your email and seeing if somebody wrote to you, you're uh, attending to the outside world in a way that shuts down and decouples uh, an internal network, like Manoush mentioned, called the default mode network, which we now know is involved in all kinds of complex integrative thinking, bringing together your past memories with possible futures, imagining things that don't actually exist, thinking about how things could be, thinking about why things happen as they do, and trying to make sort of coherent meaning, a, a narrative, if you will, out of how your life is going and how it could go uh, if you were to sort of be more strategic about how you re-engage after you're done being bored. Mm. Is, I kind of think that I, because I took your test, read your book, it's a great book, and I saw your, <laughs> Thanks, your tips on it. I, I said to myself, I don't get bored. I mean, I'm always, yeah. I always have something that, to do. That's how I feel too. Yeah. You know? I always have something going on in my mind. So, yeah. okay. So I have spoken to people. I have two things to say to that. First of all, if you are not struggling, if you can put down your cell phone, no problem, look around you. There is someone, a partner, a coworker, <laughs> a friend, a child, a parent who is struggling. 
to be able to sit and be with their thoughts. Mm. And secondly, I would say that maybe what you've realized is that daydreaming, the positive, constructive kind, I do a lot of you that. know it works. And so you are able, the minute you get bored, you don't de- de- go run away no, from it. No. You embrace That's it because right. you've seen that all these great ideas can come from it. So uh, yay, Ira. <laughs> no, Gold star. I, I can't focus. That's my problem. I'm always doing something, Mary Helen. And you know when I find my most creative time, and maybe you've found this with, with your surveys, is that when I'm doing nothing and something boring is happening, mm, like yeah. I'm taking a shower, right? Yeah, exactly. exactly. Or I'm right. driving on a long road. Yeah. My mind is actually being more creative. That's exactly I'm yeah. solving a problem I couldn't solve before. That's right. And you know what, Ira? It's not just that you're bored. It's that you're using up your sort of physical attention and, and motor control with kind of automatic, easy-to-complete tasks that are kind of, you know, controlling and suppressing your urges to jump around and move and and attend to stuff. So you're doing something. Mm. It's just something very banal and easy to do that doesn't require a lot of conscious effort. And that's where your mind is really free to engage in these other forms of thinking that are more integrative. And I would I would add to that that uh, there are a lot of people out there whom I've been speaking to on my book tour who say that I think what they're doing is um, confusing productivity with reflex, with this ability to be responsive all the time. So they're thinking, oh, (laughs) it's a long shower. That means I have time to listen to a podcast. Oh, it's a long drive. I'll call my brother and have a long conversation. They're thinking of that time as Mm. not useful, but as a way to be sort of connected to something when actually it is incredibly useful if you let your mind space out. Talking with uh, Manusa Marodi, a host of A Note to Self and author of Bored and Brilliant, How Spacing out can unlock your most productive and creative self. Uh, also uh, talking with uh, Mary Helen uh, and Mordino Yang. Uh, Manush, okay, so you surveyed all these, you spent years collecting those <laughs> yes. research. Um, how did people's lives change when they took your survey and tried the steps you mentioned in the book? Okay, so first the bad news. Collectively, the, with the 20,000 of us, we only shaved off six minutes of time per day on our phone on average. <laughs> I know, and I How thought... How bad are we? I know, and I was like, I went back to Mary Helen and some of the other people who we were <laughs> consulting with. I was like, I don't think it worked. And then I also shared with them all of the thousands of stories that we got. And they said, you know, changing a behavior or a habit in six days is nearly impossible. So one woman, for example, Vanessa, renamed her farm Make Time Farm. And now one day every month, she opens up her farm uh, to the community. She puts out a basket where people can put their gadgets. They can activate their default mode. They can take a nap. And what she decided was not only did she need her farm to sort of, you know, pay for her life, but she decided to use it as a place where people purposefully use their technology or purposefully didn't use their technology. They got a little bored. Hmm. Is there is there the ultimate or is there a goal of boredom we should be shooting for every day? Is there a, you know, a certain time? <laughs> no, and, and, and you, you're, you're careful to mention that you're not talking about mindfulness. Here. Correct. That's absolutely right. And so, uh, well... 
statistically, 90% of the people felt that they had more control over how they used their gadgets. 70% felt that they just had more time to think. And so I would say um, mindfulness is another network in your brain that is about sort of not thinking. The beauty of boredom is not knowing where your mind is going to take you. So setting a goal, yes, it can help you solve a specific problem, but part of the joy of this is the surprise that you might end up coming up with a brilliant idea that's as simple as knowing what to do with the leftovers in your refrigerator. You know, I yeah. would argue that is creativity right there. You know, years ago, I, I, I had an opportunity to talk to some of the Einstein students. I mean, these are guys who are already middle-aged themselves. And I'd say, what did Einstein do when mm-hmm. he, had a, he had a problem? He, he'd say they, they, he would say, I give a little tink, uh. and he would take <laughs> a walk. You know, and think, you know, get bored. Think about his ideas. Yeah. And that's what he did. Let's go to the phones. Brian in, in Elkhart, uh, Indiana. Hi, welcome to Science Friday. Hey, I'm a teacher, and uh, and I work with teachers. I train them on instruction. And as tech flows into our buildings, we really work with our teachers on you don't always have to let students use it um, and pushing them back to the mindfulness thing. And, you know, and not even necessarily mindfulness, but pushing students to interact with each other. So the students might be saying that they're bored in class, but we're working with our teachers to harness that energy and get them to interact with each other and have more creative work time in the classroom together. I, I love that because I've spoken to a lot of teachers who have done Bored and Brilliant in their classrooms, and one of the things they say that starts to reappear in the classroom is eye contact between students because they realize not only do they maybe have their phones with them, but they might have tablets in the classroom. They're looking at smart boards all the time. And so when those get turned off, we start to go to some of the nonverbal ways of communication that we don't do as often as we used to, including eye contact. So, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Mary Helen, what do you think? Yeah, I think in education, I've done a lot of work in education. This is something that really interests me because it's so uh, important for today's kids and teachers. And I think in education, the key is to be strategic and aware of how you're using the technology so that it's facilitating a high-level goal of kids really engaging with us in interesting problem space, learning from one another, collaborating in interesting ways, Mm -hmm. accessing information. Um, But when it starts to be a fill-in for actual real-time collaboration and interaction between people and eye contact, like, like Manoush said, uh, then, then it's it's driving instead of uh, the people in the classroom driving, and we need to take a yeah, step back. Yeah. Yeah, let's go to uh, Sue in Waco, Texas. Hi, Sue. Welcome to Science Friday. Yes, hello. Go ahead. I, um, I'm a news junkie, and I love listening to science programs, and I listen to NPR One a lot. Um, and I used to just have my thinking time when I walk my dogs and I used to have a long walk to work or else a long walk to public transport and now I drive everywhere and Mm -hmm. so I have the radio on with more news and I'm starting to think um, I'm I'm also found that more recently I'm waking after four or five hours at night and then I'm just awake for an hour or so thinking um, before I get back to sleep again and that didn't happen to me when I had my long walk Mm. but maybe I'm, my body's telling me, hey, you need thinking time, even if I make you wake up in the middle of the night to think. Could mm. that be happening? All right. Let me remind everybody that this is Science Friday from PRI, Public Radio International. So that answers that. You have an answer to this kind of question I asked. Do you need 
I have the exact same thing happen to me. I, I Mary Helen, maybe you know the the studies behind this, but I find mm-hmm. that if I don't give myself the time to process the information that I have taken in during the day, I am up in the middle of the night too. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's uh, one of the main causes of sleeplessness and restlessness at night is uh, not having enough physical exercise and with that also enough time to kind of process and tell yourself about your life before you go to sleep. So you've sort of, you know, consolidated what matters and offloaded it at the end of your day. So how do you take the time back? How do you how do you <laughs> recapture it? Well, so I think it's too much to say to people like, oh, just get off your phone more. Yeah. What I found is that doesn't work. No. So in the book, we have very specific small tweaks. So, for example, day four is delete that app day. For one day, take the app that is driving you bananas. Think about what it is right now, listeners. You know the one. There's always one. Just take it off for the day and see what it feels like. Don't quit the app, right? Don't quit the platform. Just not have it follow you around for one single day. And what I heard from listeners is some people, two and a half years later after the original project, they never put them back on their phone because they like using it purposefully. 20 minutes at a laptop works better for them. Other people take Twitter off their phone, for example, for one day a month just to remind themselves they don't have to do it. It is a choice to be on these platforms because I think what people have found is that the their tools, uh, well, they should be tools. They've turned into taskmasters, a yeah. lot of these apps and gadgets, when really they're supposed to be tools that improve our lives, not tell us what to do all day long. Mm-hmm. And I, I think we really have to remember that these tools are designed to capitalize on our human desire for sort of, you know, interesting information and novelty to come in from the world. We get a little hit in our brain, uh, you know, of pleasure and reward feeling when we check an email or we get a little ding or a buzz from somebody uh, interacting with us or when we see something come in on our Twitter feed. And those are very insidiously addictive. And we need to understand that that's why it's so hard to step back is that the brain is learning to expect these things to be fed to it. And it's difficult to uh, you know, switch your habits so that you're also feeling that kind of reward for something that doesn't come from the outside, but instead comes from your own mind. And, and if you're always, you know, on the phone or tweeting or something, you miss out face-to-face time mm-hmm. with people. For sure. Don't you, Mary Helen? I mean, yeah, and there's, there is there's value in that. Absolutely, there's value in that. Um, you know, the way in which we interact with other people in real time in, in sort of ways that are face-to-face and embodied is a critical piece of how our brains and our bodies are meant to interact. Yeah. We kind of co-regulate yeah. one another physiologically. And when you are interacting over these remote devices, you don't have that same kind of closeness. Because I know in my office, we, we depend on some apps to send messages back and forth. And there are people sitting right next to each other. <laughs> We're <laughs> yeah. literally texting each other messages when they could be, you know... You're, you're making me laugh because I was at uh, one of the Google campuses last week doing a talk about this, and I thought, you know, I was saying how it's not a good thing that these platforms make their money off of attention from our eyeballs all the time. And I was expecting this big backlash from them, Ira, but all they wanted to talk about was how much trouble they were having dealing with all the pings and interruptions and being on Slack and all the various platforms that there are for us to connect with each other. And then it was taking them away from the deep work that they did need to do. And if you you want some relief, you can read Manusha's book. The book is called Bored and Brilliant, How Spacing Out Can Unlock Your Most Creative and Productive Self. She's uh, 
host of NWNYC's Note to Self, Manusa Marotti. Thank you for taking time. Again, oh, good to see great. you. Yeah, good to see you, too. And Mary Helen and Mardino Yang is a neuroscientist at the University of Southern California's Brain and Creative Institute in Los Angeles. Thank you for taking time to be with yeah, us Yeah, thank you. It was fun. One last thing before we go. Ever, ever held a meteorite in your hands? Well, it may be as easy as going on your roof because in the latest edition of our Psych Candy series, we talked to Micrometeorite Hunter about the space dust that could be sitting in your rain gutter. It could be there, and we'll tell you how to find it. Head on over to sciencefriday.com roof to find out more. That's sciencefriday.com roof. B.J. Lederman composed our theme music, and if you'd like us, like us on Facebook, continue a week-long discussion on, uh, on Twitter at, uh, at SciFry. Of course, every day is Science Friday. We're there all week long on social communities. Have a great holiday in Yom Kippur if you're celebrating. I'm Ira Flato in New York.